need to pay attention. <laughs> uh, good morning. Uh, today we are going to read from the book of Daniel, chapter 3. The book of Daniel, chapter 3, starting in verse 15. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, over the last year, as you know, if you've been with us, what we've been doing is reading through the Bible together as a congregation. And then we take some time on Sunday morning to dwell on a passage that we all read together this previous week. And, you know, it's a good thing to read the Bible in large chunks like we're doing, to get the entire sweep of the unfolding drama of God's redemption. But the real nourishment comes when we bite in to those choice fruits and chew it and swallow it and meditate on it for a few minutes. So let's spend some time with the book of Daniel this morning and see what nourishment God has for our weary souls. Now, we're going to focus just on chapter 3 of this book, so let me set the stage for where we are in the story before we dive in. Uh, if you've been with us, you've been reading, you'll recall that uh, as a result of centuries of idolatry and mounting violations against God's covenant, God sent foreign nations, namely the Babylonians and the Assyrians, to judge his people and to take them away from the promised lands that they had been living in for centuries out into foreign lands, into exile. And the book of Daniel is a story about what happens to a few of those people during the time of exile. And it's going to be important for you to understand what kind of literature the book of Daniel is. We, we tend to put it in, well, not we tend to, we do put the book of Daniel uh, along with the prophets. But here's where I tell you that the book of Daniel does not belong in the prophets section. Do you remember, lo, those many months ago when we started this series, and I talked about how uh, our, the order of our Old Testament is not the same as the order of the Hebrew, the way the Hebrews ordered their books? Um, that's going to be important because... In the Hebrew order of the Bible, the book of Daniel is not in the prophetic section. The book of Daniel is in the wisdom section. Mind blown yet? Like, oh, okay, so here's why that's important. Because um, if you remember the, what we talked about, the, the key to interpreting the different sections of the scripture is to understand that the the books of Moses, you know, the Pentateuch, and the prophets, those were written for us, but not about us. Okay, so there's not a direct application, right? No, God is not telling us, that we don't read about the tabernacle and say, oh, thus saith the Lord, let us go build a tabernacle. So there's not a direct application between those sections in our lives. However, wisdom literature, on the other hand, is both for us and about us. It's true for, the, the, the things we learn in wisdom literature are true for all of God's people in all times and in all places. So, when we read about the book of Daniel, it's direct application. It's beautiful. So, um, and, and if you're wondering, uh, how is it that a story about God's people in exile has anything to do with us today 
because the last time I checked, I, I, I don't know everybody's stories, but as far as I know, nobody, or at least only a few people, have been exiled from their homeland and are sitting in here right now. What possible lessons could we learn from that? Well, remember how the author of Hebrews describes people of faith. He says in Hebrews 11, verse 13, these, that's all the people he's listed who are exemplars of the faith, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So by the reckoning of the author of Hebrews, those who have been granted faith in Christ are exiles on the earth, which is to say their homeland is not here, it is elsewhere. The homeland of the saints of Christ is the everlasting kingdom of God, which we wait for with eager anticipation. And so, to my fellow exiles here on earth, let's come to the feasting table of God's word and see what God has prepared for us in Daniel 3. So, Daniel, he was a wise man, taken from his homeland in Israel and brought into Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, appointed him to a position of leadership. And once he was there, Daniel arranged for three of his fellow Jews, also very wise, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to be appointed to positions of power as well. So chapter three is about those three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the main theme that we're gonna see here is this, it's very simple. God always delivers those whom he loves. Always. God always delivers those whom he loves. So in order to understand that, let's break the story down into three headings. The first is the command of the king. The second is the refusal to obey. And the third is the deliverance of God. So let's start with the command of the king. And we see this in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So the first thing we see here is that Nebuchadnezzar has this massive golden statue created and set up within his kingdom. And in case your ancient Near Eastern units of measurement are a little fuzzy, let me translate the size of this thing. A cubit is about one and a half feet. And that means that the statue erected on the plain of Dura was something like 90 feet tall, which is to say about the equivalent of a six-story building. So not subtle, very large. And why in the world would Nebuchadnezzar do such a thing? Well, verse two, then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you, are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now, if you know your world history, you know that this is a classic consolidation of power move. 
kings and emperors throughout the ancient world, and frankly into the modern era as well, have used religion to consolidate their authority over the people whom they rule. And think about the situation. Like a large number of Jews have just come into the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And they have this reputation for stubbornly refusing to worship any god but their own. And a division of allegiance like that is a threat to a tyrant who means to command his enti- the people's entire fealty. And so the statue was a means by which Nebuchadnezzar aimed to test the loyalty of his new subjects. Now, what was the penalty for refusing the king's command? We see it in verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning and fiery furnace. So, if the people refuse to worship, they will, in no uncertain terms, die in the fiery furnace. Now, just to be clear, the the era of world history that this is taking place is the Iron Age. And so, likely what we're dealing with here is is a furnace for the smelting of iron. And just in case your iron smelting knowledge is a little fuzzy, um, the iron melts at 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit. So, the point is, refusal to obey the king's command will result in a very painful death. And so, what comes next? No surprise, verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, with the stakes this high, what we're about to see next is astonishing. And that leads us to the second point. We've seen the command of the king, and now, in the midst of all of these people in the plain of Dura, obeying the command and falling on their face, what we see next is the refusal of some to obey. So after some period of time, we're not really told how much, some of the Chaldeans come to Nebuchadnezzar and they let him know that there are some intransigent Jews who refuse to obey. They refuse to bow down to the idol when the music is played. We see it in verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now this is, of course, a problem for a king who is seeking to consolidate power over the Jews. If these Jews, who have been granted prestigious positions in the halls of power, if they refuse to bow down, then who knows what the rest of the Jews who see their countrymen doing that, who knows what they're going to do as they, fall, as they see that example. And so what happens next is exactly what you would expect under these circumstances. Verse 13, the Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Now maybe it's an obvious question, but I'm still asking it. Why is Nebuchadnezzar so angry? Why why does these three men's refusal to obey this command, why is that such a threat to him? 
Well, I think it comes down to the nature of authority. John Frame wrote somewhere in one of his books, and I can't remember which one now, but John Frame wrote that authority is the capacity to create an obligation in another. That's what authority is. Authority is the capacity to create an obligation in another person. So for example, if I tell my son to clean his room, then because I have authority over him, I have created an obligation in him to comply. But if his sister tells him to clean his room, he, he's not under any obligation to do so because she doesn't have any authority over him. So authority is the capacity to create an obligation in another. And furthermore, to add to that, um, the obligation that is created in the other person is, is either more or less binding depending on the greatness of the one who is creating the obligation. Does that make sense? The, the, the obligation is more or less binding depending on the, the, greater, the, the greatness of the person who is making um, the obligation. So these three Jews refuse to obey the law. And, and maybe some regional satrap could have warned them to change their ways or, you know, face the consequences. But, Nebi, but, you know, in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, a regional satrap did not have ultimate authority. Nebuchadnezzar did. And so when the one who has ultimate authority commands a thing to be done, the obligation that it creates is total because he is the greatest one in the kingdom. That's why he's so threatened. In his mind, he has ultimate authority and therefore ultimate capacity to create obligations in his subjects, no matter who they are or where they're from. In his mind, that question is settled. But when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to comply with Nebuchadnezzar's command, what they're really saying is this, you do not have ultimate authority. And so what's his response? Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, Meshach, Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the music, the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So Nebuchadnezzar wants to see their disobedience with his own eyes. And then he reiterates the punishment for refusing to comply. Now let's, let's just pause for a moment and think about what their answer to this challenge could have been. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar is only requiring outward obedience to the command. Like, when you hear the music, I just want to see you fall down on your face before this idol. That's all. I just want to see the behavior. So they could have reasoned with themselves this way. Look, we're Jews in a position of power in a foreign land. Our people are subjugated under this foreign ruler, this pagan ruler, and they're being crushed under his tyranny. 
It would be good for us to obey the king's command outwardly so that we could remain in these positions and advocate for our people in the halls of power. The king doesn't require our hearts. He just requires our bodies. So why don't we do it? And that, I don't, maybe that seems very reasonable. It seems reasonable to me. Maybe it seems reasonable to you. But remember, this is a question of authority. Did you hear Nebuchadnezzar's claim to, to authority, to ultimate authority? He said, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace if you don't obey me. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, no God in the heavens can contradict my will. None can save where I condemn. And this is a claim and a command that for these three Jews can admit no compromise. And it seems to me that the, the king's question as he poses it is rhetorical. The implied answer is, you know, who can deliver? No God can deliver. But apparently, these condemned Jews did not take this as a rhetorical question because they answer the king, and their answer is marvelous. Look, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In their estimation, there are two reasons that they will not bow down to the idol. One, God can deliver us from this trial. Number two, even if he does not, our lives are not valuable enough in our sight to keep them at the cost of denying God. In other words, you cannot have our bodies while we keep our hearts reserved for God. We belong, body and soul, in life and death to God, our faithful Savior. The capacity that you have, O King, to create an obligation for obedience in us is not ultimate. We have a higher obligation to a greater authority, and his glory is worth more than a thousand lives in our sight. And this kind of response is inconceivable, apart from the hope of eternal life. They have the firm, listen to this, they have the firm conviction that God will either do them good by delivering them from death, or God will do them good by delivering them through death into his eternal habitations. This is the only place they are gathering strength for this moment. And here's where the question comes home to us as well. As we witness these servants of God standing on their conviction that the Lord will do them good by delivering them from death or by delivering them through death, we have to reckon with our own convictions as well. The threat of death has a way of testing our convictions 
on the threat, on the, on the um, question of eternal life. And some of us have never really been tested in that way. Others of us have. Some of us even now are undergoing the trial. Some of us carry the fear of death around with us like a millstone hung around our necks and it drags upon the ground and creates fear and sorrow and grief in our lives. And no matter which category that I just listed that you fall into, we have an invitation in this passage to reckon with these questions. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar said, who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? And it's a magnificent question. But before we answer it, let's see what kind of good the Lord did for these men. Number three, the deliverance of God. Let's look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of fire killed the men, killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So the king, in his rage, has thrown them into the fire, which has been heated to seven times its normal capacity, its normal temperature. And at that temperature, even, it says, his mighty men, the, the, the strongest of the empire, even his mighty men are killed just from the heat coming outside of the furnace. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. Their hair, the hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. The mighty men who threw the Jews into the furnace were killed merely by standing in proximity 
to the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into the heart of the fire, and they stood, and they walked, and they were unharmed. In fact, the fire didn't even touch them. No hair was singed. There wasn't even the smell of smoke in their garments. And to the astonishment of the king, the bearer of their deliverance was in the fire with them. A fourth man who looked to their eyes like a son of the gods. And people get hung up wondering about the identity of this fourth man. Like, was it Jesus? You know, in a pre-incarnate state somehow? Well, I don't know. Daniel doesn't tell us. And no, and no New Testament author makes any claim that would clear it up for us. And in general, the language, you know, a son of God is usually reserved for angels in the Old Testament. So in many ways, it really doesn't matter what the identity of this fourth man is. The point is that God delivered these men from death. And so the rhetorical question has been answered with more force than Nebuchadnezzar could ever imagine. Who is the God who can deliver you out of my hands? The answer, Nebuchadnezzar, is that it is the God of creation who spoke all things into being with words of power and sustains all things by his will. He is the God of the Exodus who led his people out of the house of slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He's the God of the Red Sea who parted the waters for the salvation of his peoples and then commanded them to come crashing together for their judgments of the enemies. He is the God of Sinai who descended upon the mountain in a flame of fire and made a people for his own possession. He is the God who delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire, and he is the God whose authority supersedes any earthly authorities, even the greatest of kings. But he is also the God of Calvary. And even though the identity of that fourth man in the flames is a mystery to us, his role in the deliverance of God's people is surely fulfilled in the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for the deliverance of his people, he was thrown into the fiery furnace of God's judgment upon a Roman cross. And that furnace had been heated to seven times this normal temperature by the accumulated sins and transgression of God's people throughout the generations, sins which had cut them off from God's presence and made it so that they no longer had a place at his table or in his presence. But of two goods he could have done to Jesus, God did not choose to do him good by delivering him from the fire. God chose to do Christ good by delivering him through the fire, through death and into the grave. And on that cross, the full heat of that furnace discharged itself against him. And every one of us, this is what the Bible teaches, every one of us deserved our place in that fire. Yet, he absorbed every degree of suffering in his own body so that our sins would be forgiven. And the good news is that although Christ was delivered into death, he did emerge from the flames three days later, resurrected, never to die again. And it is in his resurrection that we now have the hope of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we have to reckon with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have to realize that 
this life is only the threshold which leads us into the house of everlasting rest. And because he has secured our eternal life in his death and resurrection, we have this hope. Do you have this hope? It's the only hope which will give us the grace to look at death in the face and say with conviction and peace, either God will do me good by delivering me from death or he will do me good by delivering me through death and whichever he chooses, yet I shall praise his name. Now, we come to the table in light of all of that. In order to prepare ourselves for this table, I want you to listen to some words from John Calvin on this passage that we have just considered. Let's let's listen. This example is set before us to show us how nothing can be safer than to make God the guardian and protector of our life. For we ought not to expect to be preserved from every danger because we see those holy men delivered. For we ought to hope for liberation from death if it be useful. And yet we ought not hesitate to meet it without, God's protect, without fear if God so please it. But we should gather from our present narrative the sufficiency of God's protection. If he wishes to prolong our lives since we know our life to be precious to him, and it is entirely in his power either to snatch us from danger or to withdraw us to a better existence according to his pleasure. We have an example of this in the case of Peter. For he was on one day led forth from prison and the next day put to death. Even then God showed his care of his servant's life, although Peter at length suffered death. How so? because he had finished his course. Hence, as often as God pleases, he will exert his power to preserve us. If he leads us onward to death, we must be assured it is best for us to die and injurious to us to enjoy life any longer. This is the substance of the instruction which we may receive from this narrative. Brothers and sisters, we come now to eat and drink at the table of our Lord. And we do so to remember that in life and death, we belong both body and soul to our faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He is the hope of everlasting life. And if you wanna know what that tastes like, it tastes like bread and it tastes like wine. And we have the privilege of tasting that hope now. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that all things come to us by grace. And our brothers and sisters who live in the hard places in the world could probably teach us a thing or two about what it means to have hope in the face of suffering and death. And I pray you will grant us the grace to listen to them. But Father, even now, I don't want you to wait. Will you grant us the gift of this kind of conviction to know that that however we interpret 
your action in our life. You never cease doing us good. If we are to live, it is because you want to do us good. If we are to die, it is because you mean to do us good. So will you grant us that grace and then allow our convictions, our words, our attitudes and behaviors to be shaped upon that hope. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may eat and drink. This is the hope of everlasting life.